You're listening to FIC Resources for Church Leaders. In this episode, you'll hear Tabiti Anuabrile, one of the pastors at Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C., speak at the 2017 FIC Leaders Conference. Tabiti addressed three paths towards becoming a transforming church by the grace and power of God. This is the first of three talks, considering the old path of transformation from Acts 2. How y'all doing? Am I on? You hear me okay? All right. Excellent. I see you guys speak that southern United States dialect. I said y'all. Y'all knew exactly what I was talking about. (laughs) This is great. I'm feeling at home already. And I felt at home when my brother was up here kind of plugging the um, the books and the book table. Go go get you a free Bible, man. But but what made me feel at home was he just started taking shots at Americans, didn't he? (laughs) It's like, that's a welcome. But it reminds me of my family. I'm the youngest of eight children, and our love language is public ridicule. And uh, so I felt right at home with that. It's a joy to be with you guys and an honor to be um, gathered together with you thinking about our Lord's Word and thinking about the Lord Himself. But we're meant to sort of enter into the presence and communion of our Lord via His Word. And uh, so that's a real treat for me and a a treat to be invited to a part of of England that I've never been to here in, um, I won't pronounce this correctly, Torquay. Is that right? Okay, excellent, excellent. You 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 know, you guys spell things funly. And in the things that you spell correctly, you pronounce weirdly. <laughs> so I have been, for the last couple days, up in Rotherham. That's how it's spelled. You pronounce it Rotherham. Is that right? Yeah, see, well, that's not right. <laughs> and now we're here in Torquay, which someone just tagged me on Twitter with a picture of the coastline out there trying to convince me that this is the Caribbean. No, it's, the, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. Having lived there for eight years, this is definitely not the Caribbean. As my wife said, we do want to thank you for your hospitality. Um, she kept describing it as warm. Not <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, I've been all over the world and uh, had the privilege of enjoying the hospitality of the saints in the Middle East and in rural Southern Africa. And um, in both of those places, we may describe things as warm. (laughs) Not here. In fact, I'm beginning to believe that I've done something to anger the FIEC planning committee. Invite me to the beach in winter. (laughs) 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 What is that, man? It's a great joy to be with you and to be in God's Word. I don't know any pastors, deacons, lay leaders, crash volunteers, or even average Christians who don't want to see radical transformation in their communities, in their churches, in their own lives. Instinctively, as missional people, churches long for transformation. Such transformation can come from any number of sources. We pray for revival. We might be transformed by a fresh enlargement and outpouring of God's Spirit. Transformation can come from the improved health of our churches. We may desire to see significant impacts on our surrounding communities and there see a kind of external vision of transformation. But at bottom... I think all remotely healthy Christians simply long to be 
changed. We are, as it were, caterpillars emerging more and more into the glory of Christ. Of course, transformation isn't as easy as Optimus Prime shouting Autobots transform. It's not as smooth as X-Men, Beast, morphing from human to blue gorilla, or Wolverine sprouting antinomium claws from his hands. I'm sorry, I had to get my Marvel geek out. <laughs> See, we don't have a technology or a mutant power that can produce on command the transformation we wish to see. In truth, the transformation we seek requires an even greater power, requires the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Since it requires God's power, beloved, transformation has to be sought God's way. In the plenary talks I have the privilege of giving, I want to address three paths to becoming a transforming church by the grace and power of God. I want to consider the old paths of transformation, which we'll consider tonight in Acts 2, the neglected path of transformation, which, Lord willing, we'll consider tomorrow morning from Titus chapter 2 and 3, and the greatest path of transformation, which hopefully we will see in 2 Corinthians 3. We'll begin tonight again with the text that was read, and let me just, for our remembrance, read it again for us. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to suggest there are four elements of transformation in this text. Number one, there is disciple-making. You'll see that there in verse 41. Number two, there is devotion. We'll see the things that they were devoted to in verses 42 and 43. Number three, there is distribution described so provocatively for us in verses 44 and 45. And then there is a kind of dailiness, a kind of dailiness, verses 46 and 47. See here this process of making disciples simply sort of described for us in verse 41. So those who received his word, Peter preaching that wonderful sermon there in uh, Acts chapter 2, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, by any accounting, what we have here is the breaking out of revival. The Word of God cut the hearts of sinners, and the Spirit of God granted the gifts of repentance and faith, and the miracle of new birth was had by all those who believed. The impressive thing isn't the number of those who believed, some 3,000, 
The miraculous thing is that any believed. Well, the repentance of one sinner is no less staggering than the repentance of 3,000. Every conversion is a resurrection. Before Peter preached this sermon, these thousands of souls stood, as it were, in a mass grave. And at the owning of that sermon by the Holy Spirit, there was now this mass resurrection. Life imparted by the proclamation of the gospel, that old, old message, which begins to carve out for us the old path. In verse 41, Peter preached, sinners repented and believed, then they were baptized, and all that were baptized were added to the number of the church. It's interesting, from the very start of the New Testament church, it seems the apostles concerned themselves with who actually belonged to the church. And they distinguished the church from the world, a distinction celebrated by baptism. They began before this sermon with 120 timid souls. After the Spirit falls in the preaching here at Pentecost, now there are more than 3,000, all added to the number. As John Stott put it, everyone who was saved was added to the number, and none were added that were not saved. But now this was not a chaotic, disorganized group of thousands. They were the church that Christ promised to build in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And our Lord, being himself the master carpenter, doesn't build haphazardly. His blueprints are sure. Every nail driven is anchored. There's order. And here the Lord leaves us a model in broad sketch for making disciples. Christ nails together three things in this verse, the preaching of the gospel, with water baptism, and church membership. Membership. This is the basic blueprint for, again, completing that promise in Matthew 16, and Acts 2.41 provides perhaps the, the simplest process for, for bringing people into a discipleship relationship with Christ and into the fellowship of his church. And at least this much should define how we make disciples in our churches. Because this is also the simplest sketch of the transformation that Christ produces in the world. This may not seem like a big thing to some of you. But the most foundational thing our churches can do is reunite gospel preaching with careful observation of conversion and the public profession of faith in baptism and entrance via baptism into the church the visible expression of God's kingdom. This is how Christ builds his church. And if we tear these things apart, we unravel the very thing that Christ is building. When we unravel the church, we scatter her, and we dilute her transforming power. There's something implicit here that we ought to make explicit. It must be realized that a transforming church first changes the individual and then forms a new society. We transform our cities and cultures to the extent that we're able to, not primarily by changing the cities and the cultures. We transform cities and cultures by changing individuals and then placing them together in the alternative society called the church. We become salt and light in the world by making the church a, a clear alternative to the world. We have a 
a biblical ecclesiology and sound pastoral practice in order for this to happen effectively. Without a good ecclesiology, it's doubtful we will build a solid church. Surprised sometimes of how many pastors and planters I meet who have never thought carefully about ecclesiology. If you're a church planter with no doctrine of the church, what is it you're planting? And it can be staggering and sad sometimes to recognize how many pastors have no plan for shepherding then the people who are in their care. They're going to give an account to God for them. Seems foolish to me for us not to have a plan. So how well tethered is the gospel preaching of your church to conversion and baptism and church membership? Are we careful to preach the gospel in every sermon? If transformation begins with that old message, and in that message is the power of God unto salvation, and salvation is not merely people becoming more moral and, and sort of modifying their behavior externally, but becoming sort of new creatures born again by the power of the Spirit through that message and faith in that Christ who offers himself in that message, then does our every sermon include that message with that power to transform? And are we as pastors and leaders and small group leaders, are, are, we, are we careful and patient and deliberate in helping people understand conversion and to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith? Or as is the case in many American churches, are we rushing them up front to sort of respond visibly and, and, and physically and, and then rushing them, you know, into the baptismal waters and into the churches and, 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 and sort of rushing folks in such number that we wind up with sometimes things that could hardly be called churches. But we've not been careful with conversion. And are we clearly tying baptism to church membership? the way the apostles did. Again, this is all very broad, very simple. It's skeletal. But transformation begins with gospel-initiated disciple-making, bringing people from lostness in the world to faith in Christ and repentance of sin into the visible community of God's people called the church. That's our basic theory of change. But now what do you do when you get people inside the church? They've been converted and baptized and added to the membership. What, what then? Again, the old apostolic path, the old apostolic example instructs us. Look at verses 42 and 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It seems the apostles taught and modeled one thing in these two verses, the key word here, devotion. To say they devoted themselves means they exhibited a strong commitment. They were constantly attending to these activities. And, and four spiritual exercises define their devotion. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. In other words, they were constantly attending to the, to the instruction, to the doctrine of the Lord's messengers, of the apostles, which we have in the Scriptures. 
And then they, they sought to share together, the fellowship, the koinonia, the, the, the sharing of themselves and, and what they have with one another for encouragement. And by that means, they had their hearts joined together as they ate with one another. This is how you know the apostles were Baptists. They always ate at their meetings. <laughs> and they attended to set times of prayer in the Jewish temple as well as praying together in their own settings, in their, in their homes. And so the strategy, beloved, for transformation is really quite simple. Teach, share, eat, and pray. Teach, share, eat, and pray. It's a strategy that every church of every size, of every pastor, of every skill level can commit themselves to. Now, as simple as this strategy is, let's, reduce, let's resist the tendency to reduce it to a set of perfunctory activities. I don't believe what we have here is kind of an early liturgy and, and we're checking off the boxes of, of sort of doing these things in our services. Remember, by these ordinary means of grace, God's people meet with God himself. By these simple and profound realities, we have communion with God. And so you see there in verse 43, awe came upon every soul. I tend to think that that's because by these means they were pressing into the presence of our holy God and seeing something by these means of his glory and his majesty and his power and his grace and a holy hush fell upon all the people because they were meeting with their God. And the best transformation happens in the presence of God. It's by the apostles' teaching, by God's word, that he discloses, that he reveals himself to us. It's by the fellowship and the breaking of bread that we impart divine grace to one another and encourage one another. It's by the prayers that we deliver as a priesthood of believers that we get to minister in the very presence of our holy God. It's what we saw in the Get to Know You video. It's the young woman with the church there in Oldham said that we're not just merely meeting. Did you catch that? We don't just merely meet to have a service. We fellowship with one another, and we encourage each other by providing for each other. That's old. That's as ancient as the apostles. And it's as effective in Oldham as it was in Jerusalem. And it's as effective in our churches as it would be in any other church. This is how the early church enjoyed more of Christ. If enjoying more of Christ is our fundamental hunger as Christians, then it seems to me that the old apostolic ways of, of using the ordinary means of grace continue to be the best method for not only enjoying Christ for ourselves, but, but seeing the transformation of individuals and churches and communities at the same time. If this is the old path of transformation, can we, can we be surprised, beloved, at the weakness of churches who neglect the ordinary means of grace? Can we be surprised if our churches feel to us weak and ineffective, if our prayer meetings are empty? 
Can we be surprised, I mean genuinely and legitimately surprised, if, if we don't bear the mark of, of being Christ's disciples as he defines it in John 13, 34, and 35 by our love for one another? Can we be surprised that we're not recognized as disciples if we're never seen together, fellowshipping, eating together, sharing, loving one another? Can we be surprised if we don't see transformation? If we are not yet as devoted to God's word and its proclamation as this text holds out for us? It may be that an unprincipled pragmatism has drawn a lot of our churches away from these paths. You may be able to identify a, a pragmatic spirit in your, in your own mind if you feel a sense of boredom at this text, or, or you're even experiencing a negative reaction to these four simple things. If you hear yourself saying, this won't work, then you're considering a kind of pragmatism instead. If you hear yourself saying, yes, yes, we should do these things, but we, we must have new strategies on top of them, then you may be full, full of feeling the pull of a kind of pragmatism, a kind of do-what-works philosophy without regard to principles. And you might quite simply also be struggling with the sin of unbelief. You know, principle pragmatism is quicksand to the church's feet. It will draw us gently in at first. Then it will tighten its grip as we sink deeper into it. And our every effort to climb out with some other pragmatic strategy will seem to sink us deeper into that suffocating swamp. And we've seen the pragmatist's life. He begins well enough. He finds energy and enthusiasm from something that he tried, that, that worked. He's the kind of guy who gets his juices going by being creative and, and innovative, and that's not wrong in its place. He didn't expect all of his strategies to work, but some have. And, and he's seen what he regards as result. And, and, and he, he knew he'd have to follow that trick with another one. So he does. And perhaps that works too. But in time, some things don't pan out. And that's okay, he tells himself. Or after all, he's, he's entrepreneurial. He's creative. He likes this kind of thing. But then he notices that fewer and fewer things get results. At the same time, the, the things that do continue to get results require more and more resources of time, more and more people, more, more and more money. His plans get bigger, more elaborate, in order to draw smaller and smaller crowds. It turns out that pragmatism, beloved, is an opioid. He feels dissatisfied and discovers his, his identity was wrapped up in the notion of success. His identity was wrapped up in the notion of clever strategy. And so he's sad when he discovers that we all age out of cool. He's too old to be the hip thing in town. His church has aged with him. They all wonder where the young people went. Now he looks back over the years and he also wonders what happened to all those results. He even wonders if those things worked at all. You see, he's lost the old path and it's hard to find his way back. The apostles, beloved, would spare us this sad journey. 
They would call us to never leave the old path in the first place. Rather, trust the old methods, methods that, that they use that, that, that God ordains. Preaching, fellowship, eating together, and prayers. You find these old strategies, they age well with you. In doing these, even if you're never the hip thing in town, you will be the faithful thing. And in doing these things, you will discover that there's a whole bunch of young people who think it's new. <laughs> we see them devoted to preaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and the prayers. But notice a third thing, this path of transformation. It also includes a kind of distribution. They disciple, they devote, and they distribute. Now, in America, any talk of distribution and redistribution automatically frightens a certain set of Christians. They hear in that kind of language a communist or socialist boogeyman, right? They grow incredibly concerned about property rights and taxation. So much so, they essentially erase the plain meaning of passages like verses 44 and 45. Look there with me. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The church's economic program comes down to two basic things. Work or you don't eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and share with others, as in this verse. And it's sharing with others that grabs our attention here. You see, beloved, selfishness never transforms society in a healthy direction. It just never does. It, it's doubtful that radical, unequal distribution of resources can be good for any society. So, so we ought not be surprised that God commands his church to share as an expression of their togetherness and their love. We see the same thing a little later in Acts. Flip over to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Notice the way their hearts are described. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 40, 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see, beloved, their sharing flowed out of their oneness of heart and soul. Union produces communion. Notice verse 34 again. There was not a needy person among them. That's a staggering vision for sharing in our communities. Now keep in mind, we just saw in Acts 2, and there are thousands of people in the church at this point. No doubt there were many in deep poverty and many with significant needs. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke tells us, nobody lacked anything they needed. Coming up, I grew up in a Poor working class family, a mother, single mother of eight children, which meant you had to be at the dinner table on time <laughs> if you wanted to eat. <laughs> but with my friends growing up, we, we had a little saying. We could be six or eight of us riding our bicycles around town and, 
And maybe one of us had a few coins in his pocket, and maybe another had a couple of more coins, or, or maybe there was just one kid with a little bit of money. But we were together. And because we were together, it, we, we just kind of had this saying, we had this understanding that if one eats, we all eat. If one had money enough for some candy and a pop, then we all would get a piece of candy and a sip of that pop, that soda pop. Or if a few people could coin, put their coins together, then we would, we would think about what to purchase that would in some way supply to everyone's needs. And something like that is at work in the early church in, in a more grand way and ought to be at work in our churches, beloved, if we, wanna, if we want our churches to be transformative. Well, let me put it another way. I'm sometimes asked in conferences like this, what does your church do to, to help the poor in your community? Like, I have a solution to poverty, right? It's a wonderful question. And usually the questioner has an interest in some kind of special program. Is there some initiative? Is there, is there something unique that you guys are doing? Is there something that you're seeing particularly effective as a, as a program to ameliorate the kinds of challenges we see in many of our neighborhoods or in the families in our churches? It's a fine question. But this text, I think, teaches us that God's poverty reduction, reduction program is the church itself. First, the text assumes, Acts 2 that, and Acts 4, that poor people become Christians and active parts of our congregations. Secondly, the text assumes that the wealthy in the congregation actually care about their brothers and sisters who are in need. And third, the text teaches that we have a responsibility to then practically do something. In this case, we see them selling their possessions and, and distributing the proceeds in a way that, that meets needs. That's why in Acts 6, we have the daily distribution to the widows. That's why in 1 Timothy 5, I believe it is, Paul talks about the, the list of widows that are recorded and, and watched over in the church. It's why James forbids partiality toward the rich in his letter. Perhaps it's why Jesus tells a rich man, to sell all he has, give to the poor, and then follow him. Have you ever thought that the Bible means us to do these things? That we're told about that interaction between Jesus and the rich man, not because it's a particularly compelling interaction that makes for good preaching fodder, but because Jesus actually thinks that for some of us that's a part of Christian discipleship to sell what we have and give to the poor. So, so our answer to the question, what does your church do to help the poor, must at least begin with, well, we're a church, and we have all things in common, and we live in such a way as to take care of each other and to make sure people don't have need. Now, I do not mean that Acts 2 commands that all Christians of all time sell everything they have and give it away. Seems to me that when you come down to Acts chapter 5 with the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, there's the assumption that they were to do that voluntarily. And the problem there is that they tried to be deceitful. They tried to have a reputation for generosity while not actually following through on the promise. Isn't it striking that the first supernatural judgment we have uh, in the book of Acts after the church is born is a judgment on this very issue of generosity, of giving to meet the needs of others? So I don't understand Acts 2 to be a normative command, but I do understand Acts 2 along with the rest of the Scripture to be exhorting us to a posture of generosity and sacrificial care for others. 
So, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul instructs those in Timothy's charge. He tells Timothy to, to charge or command the rich to be generous and ready to share on every occasion. Or he writes to the Corinthians and takes up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And he says to them, listen, basically, this is a test of your love. Or take John in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, where he writes these words, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, isn't that a striking image? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's what we see here. Distribution transforms the heart and affections of the giver. Then it transforms the heart and material condition of the receiver. Now, if you've been mentally posing objections to Acts 2 and giving up things, and sharing things. Please note that your mind is traveling in the opposite direction of this text. Be aware of what you feel and think as you listen to God's Word. But objections and questions are natural. You should be testing everything I say the way the Bereans did with Paul. That, that's no problem at all. But if your objections are found unwarranted by the Scripture and they win over and against the Scripture, you're heading in the wrong direction. What would make us seize up and draw back from this kind of vision of generosity? And what can be more transformative to a city or a culture or a church than to have with, within it an alternative society, the church itself, where every member's need is met through the generosity of the community as a whole? The non-Christian world is largely okay with poverty and its effects. Christ's people should not be, especially among its own. The contrast between the unbelieving world and the Christian church should be as stark as midnight and noonday when it comes to caring for the weak and the vulnerable. The early church here turned the world upside down by turning the relationship between rich and poor upside down. They shared and distributed to any with need. And the question becomes, is that true of our churches? Do our plans to care for the poor begin with caring for the poor in our own membership? Do we have a vision for this kind of radical generosity of heart that, that leads to no one having need. Or, beloved, is Christ's church too stingy to be transformative? They discipled, they devoted themselves, they distributed, and number four, it was daily. It was daily. See there in verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food of glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's sad, but at least in the United States, so many Christians have become Sunday morning only Christians. Their spiritual lives have shriveled to that hour or at most two hours spent at a worship service on the Lord's day. And in many circumstances, no one challenges them to pursue more. 
No one asks how it goes with their souls. They're left to die on the vine day by day. So the idea of daily spiritual exercise seems radical to today's church. The idea of doing that both in, in the public gathering, see there in verse 46, attending the temple together, as well as in the private setting, notice there, breaking bread in their homes. Well, to a lot of professing Christians, that seems like overkill. To a, to a Sunday morning only church culture, that you have people say, hey, it doesn't take that much. So we're talking about a transformative church here. We're not talking about a nice, comfortable, nominal vision of Christianity. Listen, beloved, it's impossible to transform anything if we spend six days and 22 hours of the week awash in the world and only two hours a week with Christ and the people of God. Transformation requires we increase the proportion of our lives lived in the active and joyful engagement of Christ and his people. If we would but tithe our waking hours. We spend an hour and a half every day in spiritual exercise and ten and a half hours every week if we would but tithe our waking hours. How does your life compare to that? Not as if there's some new law to induce guilt, but as a measure of giving yourself to increasing enjoyment of Christ and his people, maybe that's a threshold, a benchmark. Is an hour and a half of your day directed toward Christ? Ten and a half hours of your week directed toward him and his people? This was their daily routine. This is what they gave themselves to over and over and over. Beloved, transformation can look so daily. It's the small, regular acts of faithfulness that lead in God's providence and timing to grand acts of transformation. Daily these saints were together, hearing the word preached in the temple. Daily these saints were together, eating meals in their homes. Daily they were stirred to, notice, glad and generous hearts. Daily they praised God and grew in favor with all people. Now, notice with that last phrase, their daily spiritual exercises did not take them away from daily contact with people who were not yet Christians. They grew in favor with all people. So this is not a monastic vision but a genuinely missional vision based on the ordinary means of grace. Mark well the consequences at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Daily commitment ending in daily conversions. One wonders if we don't see daily conversions because we lack a daily commitment to Christ. So, beloved, when we consider the early apostolic example, what do we think and feel? I mean, are we thinking to ourselves, people nowadays would never commit to something like that? Are we feeling like this would be too much of a burden on the ministry? Are you trying to Jesus juke me right now? You like the beating. Acts 2 is a unique historical redemptive act in which God supernaturally enlarged the work of his spirit to birth the early church. Man, I read the theology books too. <laughs> I'm wondering right now about our reaction to God's living word. 
It is, of course, the case that our people will not daily devote themselves to these things if, as their leaders, we will not devote ourselves to these things. While our day differs in important respects from the apostles' day, our people do not differ at all. The same basic need to know and enjoy God exists unbroken in humanity from that day until now. The same basic need to be in a nurturing community that, that spurs us on to love and good deeds exists in an unbroken fashion from the birth of the church at Pentecost until our day. The same Spirit of God is at work in that day, continues to work in our day. The same gospel that saved when Peter preached it is the same gospel that saves when we preach it. The same Christ who was Lord on the day of Pentecost is Lord right now, and He is the same forever. The fundamental things have not changed at all, beloved. It may be that we are too compliant with the cares of this world which choke out the word of God in our people and in ourselves. It may be the case that we have unknowingly and unwittingly become apologists for the cares of this world, anticipating those cares on behalf of our people and accommodating the church's expectations to those worldly concerns. We will not see a transformed or a transforming church if we do not break the mold of this world if we do not renew our minds and express a cross-carrying devotion to the things of Christ. Or to put it another way, if this text feels like too high a bar for the membership of our churches, then it's likely the case that we have set the bar too low. I once heard Ian Murray say the least demanding churches are the churches in greatest demand. What do you think about that? Beloved, if this simple routine of public and private daily devotion causes us to shrink back for fear that it requires too much, what will be our reaction when it's truly time for us to carry our crosses? What will be our people's reactions when they have to suffer like Christ? Beloved, it's hard to develop character in a pinch. We must be invested with the resources of the gospel and the spirit daily before the challenge comes. In setting the bar too low, have we assembled and trained a group of people too flimsy and faint-hearted to be transformative? We may be discipling people for comfort rather than conquest. It may very well be a church, but it's not a transforming church. And as leaders, we must decide which we desire comfort and ease and nominal routine or to be visited by the Holy Spirit in fresh power and transforming grace. I think we'll see more transformation in our ministries, our churches, and our communities if we commit ourselves to the old paths of transformation in the daily use of the ordinary means of grace. The old paths are well-traveled and well-established, we do well to remain on them. Let's pray together.
Father John, ask that we would be challenged by your word. And we have come here for that. To be refreshed, to be helped, to be exhorted, and perhaps to be bound up from a year's worth of bruising and battle. But we do wish to be stirred. We do, O Lord, want more of you. Want more of your power displayed. Want more of your grace operative among us. Want to see more evidences of your spirit at work in the converting of souls, in the growing of saints, in the strengthening of the church, in the transformation of both your people and the world. We repent of ever trying to do that in our own strength. We repent of thinking that our ways are higher than your ways, that our ways are better than your ways. For your ways are as high as the heavens are from the earth, so different are your ways from ours. And and so we pray that you would bless us with a kind of forgetfulness of ourselves and our own wisdom and a kind of deep, childlike, rock-ribbed trust that your word does the work. Help us to recommit ourselves to it. And help us, O Lord, to build the kind of churches that are daily being transformed by your grace and your spirit and by your grace and your spirit having some impact in the transformation of men and women and children and bringing them into your church. Grant us, O Lord, great grace, even revival, we pray, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk. And don't miss our new podcast launching this autumn, Independence. It will feature regular discussions on relevant topics to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or watch on YouTube and the FIEC website.